without an ending, uh, most good stories and good movies are miserable experiences. Um, without, uh, without a good um, ending, without resolution, there is something in our heart that just cries out. Urgh. We're being stuck in the middle of a crisis, in the middle um, of the tension. Um, it's just miserable. We, we long for resolution. Just imagine, imagine the existential crisis you would experience if every sports event or every sports event you watch, the movie turned or the TV turned off 10 minutes early. Every movie ended 15 minutes early. Every book had its last 100 pages ripped out. Um, and yet, uh, here is one of the chief problems of living as a human being and a Christian. We live in the middle of unfinished stories. Uh, we live in the middle of the mess. We live in the middle of the crisis. We have a to-be-continued, uh, whether that is a good or bad thing, over every aspect of our lives. We want to fill desires, unresolved crises, and uncertain futures. And our circumstances aren't just to be continued. You and I are walking and talking to be continued. We haven't arrived yet. We still struggle with sin. Our faith wavers. We make progress, but our progress is painfully slow. And uh, what is beautiful about this little happy ending in Ruth 4 is that it assures us that for those who remain faithful to God, for those who uh, faithfully walk with him and trust him, even in the bitter things he gives, that it turns out well for them. Uh, this story gives us a little picture, a little glimpse of the ending of your story, if you will remain faithful to Jesus. We're going to see primarily here that God has secured sweetness for you. The first, uh, first thing we see in verses 1 through 12 is that God secures the sweetness for Naomi and Ruth through the faithfulness of Boaz. Now, this needs a little bit of context. So in chapter 3, as I said, uh, Ruth kind of puts Boaz on the spot in a really big way. In the middle of the night, uh, she comes to him and asks uh, him to marry her. Look at verse uh, 9. Um, oh, chapter 3, verse 9, sorry. Chapter 3, verse 9, uh, Ruth answers Boaz's question of, Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She asked him to uh, be her be the right redeemer. That would involve uh, marrying her and having any children that she bore be Malhan's children. It would involve him purchasing all the land that would be Bruce. It would involve a huge sacrifice. And uh, instead of saying, let me look over my finances or think about it or pray about it, you know, he just says, yes, I'll do this. Um, but you know how sometimes when you put on the spot, and in that American Southern impulse you have uh, to be polite and nice, you promise something you really have no intention of fulfilling. Like, I'm really busy this week, but I'll give you a call when I'm available to hang out. You know, and you just kind of conveniently forget about it, right? Uh, or maybe maybe you mean it. You, you genuinely promise something. You say, "Man, I'm going to serve this year for a whole year in this capacity." And as life pans out, and your margin is stretched and you have no time for you and you're exhausted and your service isn't really that much fun, uh, all of a sudden you're thinking, how can I get out of this? But imagine the position Boaz is in. 
Ruth put him on the spot. Uh, redeeming uh, Ruth, as we'll see in a moment, will cost him dearly. It will cost him probably all the financial means he has. It will cost him his future. It is a giant commitment. It's marriage. Like, all he knows Ruth, he, he knows Ruth as the girl who gleams, who's nice to her mother-in-law, okay? What if she nags him? He doesn't know that yet, you know? It's a huge commitment. And yet, all the details in chapter 1 through 12 uh, show Boaz being faithful to his word and even arranging things to where it's almost impossible for someone else to redeem Ruth. So we'll, uh, I'll try to walk through this and explain this. This is kind of a difficult passage. But uh, notice, um, in, in first century culture, uh, you didn't have banks. You didn't, uh, you didn't have notary publics. You didn't have pe- lawyers that like decided transactions. Uh, all of the transactions were done in the presence of the people. And so what happens here is, uh, is Boaz finds the near redeemer, the guy in, uh, this is uh, chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I will redeem you. But he says, there is a redeemer nearer than I, and we'll see if he wants to redeem you or not. So Boaz wants to go by the law. So he, he finds this redeemer, and he, uh, he brings him uh, to where all the elders are in, cha- in verse 2. And everyone's sitting down. Uh, so there's obviously some kind of business transaction going on here. And he brings up the field Naomi is selling. So this is verse 3. He says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Up to this point in the story, we didn't even know Naomi owned a field. But apparently, she is so poor, she's having to sell it uh, to make ends meet. So Boaz brings this up, and he says, in verse 4, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here. If you will redeem it, redeem it. So uh, this guy, whoever this guy was, was a little bit closer in blood to Naomi and Ruth. And so he actually had the right to purchase her field. And so Boaz offers it to him. And uh, in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, the guy says, I'll redeem it. And then in verse 5, Boaz drops the hammer and he says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So why is this significant? Um, so if you, uh, if you bought this field from Elimelech, all right, you would be doing the equivalent of, as a young adult, putting 250 bucks away a month uh, in a savings account. Okay? You're going to eat rice and beans. You're not going to go to Starbucks. You're going to make your own coffee. All right? uh, you're going to live a little less luxuriously. You're going to have a, a $5 gym membership instead of a you know, $500, whatever. All right? uh, but you're going to have something in the future, some cash later. Uh, this... Uh, this redemption of Naomi's field would be an investment. This redeemer would spend almost all of his money and possessions on it now, but he'd have a really great piece of land to give to his children. He'd be able to work it and farm it. It'd be great. Uh, So it sounds good. But then, in verse 5, when Boaz reveals that along with the field comes a wife whose children you must bear for someone else's inheritance. So now, this field that he would buy would become the possession of whatever Ruth's children, whatever, whatever children Ruth bears. It wouldn't be his. So all of a sudden, uh, you're saving 250 bucks a month. You're eating rice and beans, no Starbucks, and you get nothing out of it. And the Redeemer sees that, sees that it could impair his own inheritance in verse, five, or verse 6, and he backs out. And it's really interesting that Boaz... Uh, knowing all of these costs, knowing that he's going to spend a lot of his money um, all for someone else, to have a field that's not his, uh, to, to bless someone else, to, to lose his potential future. Uh, he knows that, and yet he arranges this so that he makes the other guy, it makes the other guy impossible 
to redeem Ruth. So uh, I think this passage just emphasizes what it cost Boaz. Look at what he says in verse, verse 9. Boaz says to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malhan and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malhan. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead, his inheritance. Just notice that all of the words here are focused on Boaz's intention to bless and help these two women. He's not a Samson in the book of Judges who says, I like this woman, get her for me. Right? This is in Jacob in uh, Genesis, I think it's uh, 20-something, where he says he loved Rachel so much. He worked for seven years, and it, it just flew by. He didn't even realize it. Now, Boaz, surely, I'm sure he's attracted to Ruth, and I'm sure he uh, wants to marry her. But his primary intentions here are to rescue and to bless and to help at the cost of his personal possessions to fulfill his word, be faithful to his word. Just know, uh, this is a remarkable act of faithfulness. He promised in private. He redeems in public, right? He, uh, he's letting his yes be yes at a great cost to himself. He lays down his future to secure their future. And uh, when we see Boaz do this, when you see him uh, in a smaller way, lay down his life to bless two people who had no claim on him to go out of his way uh, to sacrifice his future and his finances for these two ladies. Um, when you see him declare it publicly and be faithful to everything he's promised in private. Can't you see the Lord Christ here? Can't you see his faithfulness? I think God put this in a picture of someone intentionally uh, out of love uh, sacrificing himself to secure the future of someone else. Um, this passage point, points us to the fact that uh, Jesus ultimately is the one who keeps his word to us at a cost to himself. God secures our future through an act of faithfulness to fulfill a promise. That's what he does. He secures blessing in the future for us through the life and death of Jesus. Um, think about Gethsemane for a second. Uh, this is a story in the Gospels. Each Gospel records, or three of the Gospels record this. Jesus uh, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays that God would let the cup of his wrath pass from him. Uh, he's right before the cross. And uh, what happens there, I think the Gospel of Luke records that Jesus got so stressed out that he began to sweat blood, um, which medically is an extreme state of stress. So Christ looks fully at the cost of what redeeming us is going to look like. He sees it square in the face and he remains faithful to what he promised us. He continues. He does it. Now one act of faithfulness has secured a certain future for you if you've placed your faith in Jesus. You have heaven before you. You have God's promises secured for you. Uh, Romans 8 actually says it. If God would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The idea there is the, the hard thing. God has already done the hard thing for you. He's already given up his son. Jesus has, Jesus has already done the hard thing to be faithful to you. And if he's done that, then surely 
in this present life. Surely in your need to now, surely secure your future, you can be faithful. Um, and so, if this morning, you need a guarantee that God is going to be good to you in the future, that he is going to secure your future, that he's going to help you in all the uncertainty and the to-be-continues in your life, look back to that one act of faithfulness that Jesus performed. Think about this. Think about Ruth a year after she's married to Boaz, okay? They have their legendary first epic married couple fight, all right? They both storm out of the room. The tensions are dying down a little bit. Ruth's alone. And she's uh, thinking, how do two people so holy yell at each other like that, right? Like, that was bad. That little thought creeps in the back of her mind. What if he leaves me, all right? How can Ruth be sure that Boaz is going to be faithful to her? In a sense, she looks back to this day when Boaz, without any necessity, being compelled by no one, willingly chooses, knowing what it's going to cost him, willingly chooses to lay his life on her. And that secures her hope that even in the middle of some grumpiness, that her husband's going to be, remain faithful to her. He's been a man of his word in the past. Um, looking back to the faithfulness of Jesus to us on the cross, securing our salvation, is really the only helpful way to be assured of God's presence in our lives. Now, think about this. There are a few ways to, to look for God's favor. Uh, one way is to look around, um, to look at your life and say, God is good as long as life is good. If my relationships are blessed, if my work life church is awesome and serves me and things are going well, and my community group is flourishing, then God is being good to me. And if you live like that, you are just setting yourself up for complete discontent. We live in a fallen world. God has never promised us sunny circumstances. Another way to look for God's favor is to look inside is to say, God will be good as long as I'm good. Right? I have my quiet times. I pray enough. I'm obedient. Then I can be sure that God's going to be good to me. He's going to secure my future. Guys, do that. You set yourself up for despair because every act of obedience could have been done a little bit more for God's glory, right? A little bit more out of faith. You have not loved like you should have, even this morning. But there's a third path laid out here. Looking back to how God has already been faithful to you in Jesus. This act of a redeemer securing your future at a cost to himself, being faithful to his word in the hardest thing. Surely he will be good to you in the smaller things that you come after. Um, so just, just, just think for a second. I think we need to really connect the dots here. Uh, Paul David Tripp coined a little phrase called a gospel gap. Uh, he talks about how sometimes uh, most Christians believe uh, genuinely that Jesus has forgiven my past sins and that Jesus has secured heaven for me, but they forget that the gospel applies in the present. Let's give you an example here. Let's say you're praying for something that is clearly God's will for you, right? He says in the scriptures, you're praying God will deliver you out of a sin, that he would give you joy. You want, you want love for a hard person in your life. You want to be able to forgive somebody from the heart. And you're praying for that, and you're asking for that. And uh, it's not coming yet. And uh, here's what normally happens. You pray once, you pray twice. We pray for a week, maybe a month. It doesn't happen it tangibly and quickly, and we give up. And we think to ourselves, either I'm not doing this right, or 
God's not helping me. And we just give up. And uh, normally what we're doing there is we're looking inside and we're looking around to see God's goodness. And this passage says, when you pray, you really want and desire this God's will. When you ask for that, do not look at yourself and how good your prayers are. Do not look at the results of your prayers. Look at how God has already been faithful to you in Jesus. And in that act of faithfulness, he assures you that he will be good to you in the thing you're asking for. Continue in your prayers. Not just in your prayers. And in, in, the, in the uncertainty of your career future, in the uncertainty of your relational life, in the uncertainty of what is, where are you going to be at in 10 years, trust that the God who was, was faithful to you, who has secured sweetness for you, is going to be good to you. So if you're a believer in Jesus, the blessing and the goodness of God has already been secured for you. There has been a transaction. You have been purchased and redeemed at the cost of the very life of God's Son. That assures you of God's goodness. But uh, to keep going and to continue, we don't just need assurance that a good future and a good, a, good, a good present is secured for us. I think we need assurance that the future is actually sweet, it's actually good. Why does anyone wait for the seven months until the new season of their favorite show comes out after that terrible cliffhanger, right? Um, because they want to know what happens. Like, they believe that surely the guys aren't going to do it again to me, right? They're wrong sometimes. But uh, uh, why, do you, uh, why do you keep at your ridiculously stressful entry-level first job out of college, you know, where your employer just railroads you all the time? Because you believe, eventually, if I keep going, Normally, this leads to my dream job, right? Um, and the whole point of this last section is just the unbelievable sweetness that God grants to Ruth and Naomi. Look at verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Do not forget that ha- how almost impossible this is. Nobody in Israel marries a Moabite foreign widow who comes to sojourn in town. That just doesn't happen. Um, but God providentially arranged this. More so, uh, God grants at the end of verse 13 that she, she would bear a son. Note, in uh, chapter 1, we learn that Ruth was married to Malhan for 10 years and did not have a child. She was barren. Um, and God chooses here, very quickly it seems, to give her a child. Um, so God's good, God's good to Ruth. He restores her fortune. But, not, but it's primarily about Naomi here at the end. Uh, verses 14 to 17. Uh, uh, the women in the town speak to Naomi. These are the same women in chapter one. And Naomi said, "Don't call me, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter, because God's up bitterly with me." And these same women say this to her in verse fourteen: "Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel." This is talking about Obed, the little child. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Given birth to him. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, became his nurse. There are few joys greater. I, I don't know this, but at least I see this in my parents' life than being a grandmama. Hey, I, I don't know if you guys know many grandmas, but they are happy with their grandchildren. And they bug you about having grandchildren. But, uh, anyways, um, uh, but the women say to her that this child will be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. He's going to make Naomi's last years her youngest. He's going to refresh her. They also point out that uh, Ruth 
her daughter-in-law, is worth more than seven sons. Now, don't forget that sons in the ancient times were the heirs, the ones who the, the na family name was passed down, the ones your future depended on were sons. And Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons. Finally, look at this. Naomi becomes the child's nurse, right? This lady who, who was stuck with a couple of foreign daughter-in-laws, right? Children dead, husband dead, poor, bereft. She now has a grandbaby who actually would be the grandfather of King David, which we'll get to in a minute. So uh, after all the trials, right, after all the uncertainty, all the risk, they end up in a great spot. Here is the happy ending. And uh, like you, I am praying, God, please do this in my life. Take all the uncertain things, take all the brokenness, take the junk and fix it. Make it right. Give me a nourisher of life. That's a good thing to pray for. I think, uh, I think Ruth tells us that sometimes, indeed oftentimes, God blesses his people like this. Um, we, should, we should be encouraged not, not to demand that God give us this happy, tidy ending to our lives, but to ask, to plead with him, to pour out our hearts. But, uh, but notice, all right, and this is really important and a little depressing, but notice that the book of Ruth does not end with, and they lived happily ever after. In fact, there's only one place in Scripture that ends that way, and it's much, much, much later. Um, think about this. What has to happen? Even in this, these amazing, happy endings, we're married, we got kids, we got the, the American Israelite dream, whatever, okay? What, what has to happen to Naomi and Ruth, Boaz, and Obed? They each have to die. In fact, Naomi pretty soon, right? She might have 10 years with her grandbaby. She might not even see him become a man. Uh, Boaz is probably 15 to 20 years older than Ruth. Ruth will spend probably the last 15, 20 years of her life as a widow again. Um, even Obed. Obed will die. And so just notice, uh, even in one of the happiest endings in the whole Bible, except for one, we have to learn to see beyond this life. Right? Even though our hearts desperately long for all of the circumstantial blessing this year, rightly so, even though we should long for it, it's okay to long for it, we should pray for it, we should ask God to do it. Even here, we see that we, if we do not learn to look past this life only, what we love will be taken from us. Physical health fades, jobs end, spouses get old and die, and might even forget who you are along the way. Um, so here's where Ruth 4 really begins to sing. Um, look at this unusual ending. So this is uh, in verse 17. We note that Obed is the father of Jesse and the father of David. And then we get to these four verses that everyone in history has skipped, right? Okay? Confession time. Who gets a genealogy and skips it? Or who, who reads vertically? All right? Okay? I'm there. I'm with you. Okay? I've done it many times. All right? Uh, just a couple things about genealogy that are really important uh, to ever understand or appreciate them. Genealogies are the way that biblical authors use to shorthand uh, describe biblical history. So they, put, they try to put the book of Genesis in 20 words, and they do it through names. They assume that the audience knows who these people are. So just, just, a, just a tip here, okay? If you're, if you're reading Luke 1 and you're like, oh my gosh, look at this genealogy, it's terrible, I'm going to die, okay? Something that's going to be really helpful, help you appreciate and understand it, is to look up the names of the people who are there. So anyways, um, this, uh, this author 
Um, genealogies are used to shorthand record biblical history. And here's what's really interesting about this particular genealogy. Uh, verse 18 says, now these are the generations of. That is, a, that is a formula used almost exclusively in the book of Genesis. All right? And it records genealogies of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all these guys. All right? And um, it seems uh, that the author of Ruth picks up uh, that narrative in the book of Genesis. Let me just try to explain that for a minute. This is a little, a little, a little tricky. Um, but the last genealogy in uh, the book of Genesis was Jacob, chapter 37. And uh, he had 12 sons. One of them was Judah. Uh, Judah was prophesied to have the ruler of the house of Israel born to him later. Right? Uh, however, Judah had some, some, some struggles. Uh, he had a daughter-in-law named Tamar. Uh, and he refused to give her one of his sons and leave a right marriage. And so Tamar took it into her own hands and dressed up as a prostitute so that Judah would give her a son. So wow, okay, welcome to the Bible, guys. Um, however, their son, whose name is Perez, which is the guy in verse 18, becomes the most important and prominent of Judah's sons, and his clan becomes the most important and prominent in all of Israel. So you have this guy who's born of an immoral, weird, people right union, become the main guy in the nation of Israel. And uh, so here's what the author wants to have you wants you to have in mind as we get to David, is that uh, God has always been graciously taking the unexpected and the people who would be most unlikely and including them in his story. And here we have Ruth and Naomi again included in his story. Um, but here, here's the real kicker: the uh, the genealogy ends uh, with Obed, verse 22, who is obviously Boaz and Ruth's son, to him fathering Jesse, and Jesse fathering David. That's King David, the guy who would go to Israel, the guy whom God would promise, one of your sons will sit on the throne forever, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the whole point of this genealogy that is so easy to skip is that the whole time, behind the scenes, okay, when Naomi and Ruth woke up, widows with no money, no husbands, no children, when they, when they had to risk themselves to come back, when Naomi was just gleaning, when she found, when she found Boaz, when she, when she made that bold miracle, the whole time, what God is up to, not just giving them a happy ending, but including them in the grand story of what he's doing in history. They are now among the descendants of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the ancestors of him. The whole time, what God was doing, primarily, providentially, was including them into this big, epic story, the story that history tells, making them the people on center stage. That was the whole point, apart from the deaths of their loved ones and being bereft and poor, they would not be included in this story. Um, I was, uh, let, me, let me try to illustrate this. I was uh, um, in Jordan in January. That was good. But the internet blew me away when I was in Jordan because I was, I think, six or 7,000 miles away from Sarah, but I could just get on Wi-Fi and push a button and we could talk, you know? Like, it was like immediately, if we could just both get on the internet, we were like, boom, thousands of miles were connected. It's like this invisible blob, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know. That's how you train to the fourth grader, okay? The visible blob that connects all things. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, but um, when, you, when you embrace Jesus by faith, when you trust him, 
you are not just united to him. Um, you're not just experiencing this kind of one-on-one uh, personal faith. You're united to Ruth. You're united to, to Judah. You're united to King David. You're, you're, you're included. You become a part of this family. You become a part of this story, this, this army even, sweeping through the generations. Um, there's this wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's about a demon trying to tempt someone. And he even admits here that the church is this invincible army of the ages spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. Terrible to obviously one of its enemies. But when you trust in Jesus, you are connected. You are brought in to that story. The main thing going on in history. And uh, for us millennials who get a lot of junk for having big dreams for our lives but being worried about missing out on the fun on Friday night, right? That contradiction we live with. FOMO over here, okay? With, uh, with these grand plans for our lives, okay? Uh, this truth meets us right at the desires of our heart. If you know Jesus, you cannot miss out. You are in, in the most important group in history. Your life is significant. You are a part of a movement that sweeps through the ages. It's beyond this life. Um, and not only are you plugged in to this, this line, not only do you have this significant story now, your story is heading somewhere. There is a destination. It's a destination so sweet that it makes what happens in Ruth 4 seem just kind of like, it's like comparing uh, LaCroix seltzer water to Sprite, okay? One, you have this like, this like, you're like, oh, it's good. But there's a little bit of like maybe some, maybe some sweetness there. And, and then Sprite, you're just blown away, right? Just like high fructose corn syrup, okay? Um, but everything we see in, in Ruth 4, this restoration of life, this, this um, being accepted in the community again, having a future. All these things, when you got, when, when, when we are in eternity, you will have those infinitely. You have a destination. Your life has an ending. You may not, you may not feel it now. You may not understand that. You may still be in the to be continued, but there's a, there's a destination coming so sweet, so good, that if you just taste it, just get a hint, your life will be filled with power to the present. C.S. Lewis said, the sun is always shining somewhere else over the next hill. That's a really good description of life. You always think, when I get to the next thing, finally the sun will be shining on me. Right? I live, if I can just climb the hill, get to the next step, finally the, the, sh- the sun will shine. And then you get there, and you realize, actually, oh, it's the next hill. And that's life. And uh, one day, if you remain faithful to Jesus, you will arrive to the place where the sun shines. Um, there was a famous lady named Florence Chadwick. She was a swimmer who lived in California. She had many swimming accomplishments, but she wanted to become the first woman ever to swim the Catalina Channel, a 21-mile stretch of open water between the coastline of California and the island of Catalina. So 20, 21 miles in the ocean. Right, she tried it. She had a rough day. Uh, there was a blanket thick fog, 
so she couldn't see more than five or ten feet in front of her. The water was ice cold, the tides and currents were against her, and there were sharks in the water. Uh, she had some boats around her that were protecting her for the most part, but she swam for 15 hours. And after 15 hours and 55 minutes, she finally gave up and asked support crews to take her out of the water. A few minutes later, she found out that she was less than a mile away from shore. 15 more minutes, maybe 20 minutes would have done it. And she said afterwards, if I could have just seen the land, I know I would have made it. Think about that. So much work and effort, but she couldn't see the end, and she gives up 15 minutes away. And uh, many of you in different degrees are flirting with that in your Christian life. You haven't gotten what you wanted. You feel like the Lord isn't just satisfying your desires. And a part of you, maybe not all, but this growing is considering, why do I even go so hard, right? Why read my Bible or serve when God's not giving me what I want? Maybe I'll just back off until God grants me my wishes. And listen, if you go there, you may never come back. And you might be the person who gets this close to the shore and misses it. Uh, Chadwick tried two months later, same swimmer. She got a clear day, and she crushed it. You girls will love this, okay? She not only became the first woman to ever swim the channel, but she crushed the guy's record by two hours. Um, that's the power of keeping the end in view. Think about that. She could see the shore. It radically changed everything. Having a goal, having a clear destination, knowing she was close. And if, if, you, if you have missed everything in Ruth 4, if all these cultural details make no sense to you, you haven't listened at all today, here's what I want to say. You have got to get a place, into a place, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, where you can see the shore, where you can get out of the fog of your daily life and get a glimpse and a picture of the destination God's leading you to. Get in front of a passage like this, or a passage that speaks about the blessings God brings to his people. Focus on it. Meditate on it. Let it bring clarity to your life. That will give you power to live in the middle of your unfinished story. It will give you power to say, I'm experiencing the to be continued, but one day God is bringing me to a place where my desires are filled, my crises are resolved, right? My dreams have come true. Get out of the fog. See the shore. You will have power for the present. I just pray this morning that this, this pointer in Ruth 4 enable our hearts to see um, and store for each of us. Please strengthen people in here who are weary, who are tempted to give up. I pray have mercy in Jesus' name.